We're going to look at some, in some detail at Isaiah 60, and you really need to have that chapter open uh, in front of you. Before we start going through it verse by verse, I want to just give some context here. My suggestion is that the latter part of Isaiah, along with a lot of the later prophets of the Old Testament, is in the context of Judah being in Babylon for 70 years and then being asked to return and to rebuild the the temple and the land of Judah. And the prophecies which we may be accustomed to reading in terms of the future kingdom which Jesus is going to set up on earth when he returns, those prophecies in fact could have had, could have had some kind of fulfillment at the time of the return from Babylon, but in fact Israel would not. They didn't actually return, most of them chose to remain the good life in Babylon, and that's why the book of Esther, to my reading, has a a tragic ending, that the Jews are prosperous, wealthy, everybody likes them, there they are, they don't want to go back, they're quite happy. And when the the call comes from uh, the Cyrus's decree to go back and to rebuild the land, the majority of them don't go back, they can hardly get enough priests to go back, in fact, the majority who remained said, well, okay, we'll, we'll give some material support to those who want to go back, but we, we ourselves will not. And when they do get back, that small remnant that go back under Ezra, and then later Nehemiah is on the scene there, they grab that little bit of land, have their little farms, and they don't really get on and build a temple as they, as they should do, and they don't um, fulfill the prophecies that are here written. In fact, the very opposite. And in fact, comparing these later Old Testament prophets with the reality described particularly in Nehemiah, it's it's tragic. When you see that actually all that could potentially have happened really didn't. And in that there's a, a huge challenge to all of us, because God, according to the New Testament, has ordained certain good works for us to do before the foundation of the world that we have far more potential than we might realise. And God has set that up today, tomorrow, for you, in your life, to go out and do great things for him. But our own dysfunction, our own lack of confidence in ourselves, our own sense that, nah, this is not me, that I am just a spectator at a show, that I am, uh, yes, a believer, a seat filler, an observer from afar, how can I personally be involved? This is for the leaders of a community, of a local ecclesia. This is not for me. But the whole point of all these prophecies is that this has been set up in, in potential for you, Judah. But most of them didn't want to see that. So then, verse 1 of Isaiah 60, Arise, shine, or be enlightened, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. Then we go on in verse 2, that there's darkness at the moment covering the earth, that's the land, and the, the peoples, the nations round about, but the Lord shall, future tense, the Lord shall rise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, or over you. And nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. So what's being said here? Let's just uh, take this slowly. The dawn, verse 2, is about to come. This light is about to rise. Therefore, verse 1, you now arise and shine, for your light is already come. But it hasn't come. It's as if it's saying, the dawn 
the sun is about to rise. But because it's definitely going to, therefore you, arise, be enlightened, be radiant, reflect the light of God's glory, because it is about to break forth. So they had to have the eye of faith to see that what was prophesied was about to to happen. Now in the context that Isaiah is initially prophesying in, I think the arise shine is the call to the Jews in Babylon to flee from Babylon, as he has said earlier in this this book, that they should get up and, and leave and be ready to go and to reflect God's glory. But sadly they they didn't. So then you can see the the similarities with our situation. Malachi is also a prophet who prophesied at the time of the the return when the exiles had already gone back and where they were not uh, living as they should and were not fulfilling the prophecies. And he says that to those who fear God's name, the son of righteousness will arise. So putting all that together, I feel myself that the Messiah could have come at the time of the restoration from Babylon. The kingdom could have been established then, just as it it could have been in in Solomon's time, in all sorts of people's time. I know you can say, ah, yeah, but what about all the prophecies about Jesus right back from the beginning? Well, partly that's God's foreknowledge, that he knew that Israel would let the ball drop, and partly, as we shall see later, all these prophecies are capable of uh, re-fulfillment, the fulfillment in a different way to what we might uh, expect. Don't forget, we are looking with hindsight. We are, in later history, looking back and in our apparent wisdom saying, oh yeah, but you see, that couldn't have happened because that prophecy still had to be fulfilled. Well, whatever that prophecy was, or is, it could have had a legitimate fulfilment in some other way, which of course we can't perceive, we can't even imagine. But it was so. So then, this light was to arise, and they were to start to shine forth themselves. And of course, the whole thing failed in terms of Judah coming back from exile and the kingdom coming and Messiah coming but it's so true for us because what God has said will in its ultimate sense come to term it will come to fulfilment and so then the son of righteousness the Lord Jesus is ultimately going to come back to this earth the dawn will break over the darkness of this world and the darkness particularly over the land of of Israel And we, ahead of time, believing that that light is to come, are to reflect that light now, to be radiant. And so the call to arise and shine comes forth to us very clearly, that we are to live the the kingdom life now, as far as we can. And uh, Paul has that in mind when he writes to the Romans, that the night is far spent, the day is, is at hand, And therefore we should live as children of the day. That because our salvation is now nearer than when we first believed and we believe that he's about to come, this is Romans 13 uh, verse 12, because the day is at hand, let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armour of light, let us walk uh, honestly, as in the day, as if the day has come. He says the day is at hand, and then he says, let us live as if we are in the day. 
We are to live the kingdom life now. And this call to arise and shine is in fact picked up specifically in Ephesians, in Ephesians 5.14, where again Paul applies this to us. This is not just history. This is not just what Judah should have done. This is what we should do now. He again talks about the coming of Jesus uh, as the light which makes all manifest. Wherefore, awake you that sleep and arise from the dead, and Christ shall shine upon you. So then, we are to be radiant. Reflecting what? Reflecting the light of the glory of God as it is in the face of Jesus Christ. To, To quote Paul again. But what does that mean? Putting meaning into words. The light of the glory ultimately refers to his characteristics, what he is like. The glory, the name of God, the personality of God, these ideas are all connected. Starting off, of course, with, the, with, with God's revelation to Moses. When he declares his name to him, His glory shines forth ultimately from the face of the angel and is reflected on the Moses face. And we are told in 2 Corinthians 3 that we each with unveiled face behold that same glory and are changed into that same image as from glory unto glory. So then, insofar as we reflect upon him, upon Jesus, something of the light of his face, of his countenance, his glory, his personality, will naturally reflect off us. And so we have to ask the question, are we Christ-centred? Is he truly the centre of our thinking? As you go around your life, what are you thinking about? Where is your heart? Particularly when nobody is looking. As you walk, as you cook, as you get ready to go to bed, as you're in the shower, where is your heart? And we can kid ourselves that because we might be thinking or meditating about things related to our religion, what colour we're going to paint the meeting room, what sort of chairs we should uh, replace the old ones with, this... uh, controversial situation or that controversial situation in our, in our meetings etc. We can kid ourselves that that is being spiritually minded but actually it's not because the essence is Jesus personally it is the wonder of his personality and insofar as we behold that we will start to reflect it so then they were told to arise because God's glory is about to be revealed. Another of the restoration prophets, Haggai, chapter 2, verse 7, writes, I think, with conscious allusion to what Isaiah 60 is saying. Now, we know that Haggai prophesied in the, uh, in the second year of Darius when the people had already gone back, but they were weak, and he has to say to them, look, consider your ways. And he says, uh, Haggai 2, Uh, verse 7, that look, I will shake all nations and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, etc. So then, Haggai says that if they were obedient, if they considered their ways and changed their attitude to God's house, then he would fill the house with glory. 
And the same idea we've read here in Isaiah about the house being beautified or glorified. And all the gold and silver coming into it. So we are Judah in Babylon. Come out from Babylon and be separate unto me. Arise and shine and realize that the Lord is about to burst through the darkness, the thick darkness that covers this earth. But they lack the spiritual vision, much like I I fear that so often we do ourselves. Verse 4, lift up your eyes and see. Now this is the seeing of faith. All the nations are gathering themselves, they're coming to you, your sons will come from far, that is Judah back from Babylon and from all the 127 provinces where they've been scattered. Your daughters shall be carried in the arms. Then you shall see and be lightened. Verse 5, I'm reading from the RV. You shall flow together, the AV says, the RV. Then you shall see and be lightened. And your heart, your mind, shall be enlarged. So he's saying in verse 1, Arise and be enlightened now. Because, he says, when God's glory bursts forth, you will be lightened then. And your heart then will be enlarged, so do it now. The light was yet to rise. You see, verse 2, the Lord is going to arise upon you. And his glory will be seen over you. It hasn't happened. It's a prophecy. And because that is going to happen, and because you will be radiant then, be radiant now. That's the, that's the point. And he says, then you will see, so verse 4, lift up your eyes right now and see. See the potential. See what is going to happen. And this bursts right into our lives. Look at your world. This is going to change. One day the the feet of the Lord Jesus will stand upon this earth again, right where you are standing or sitting at, at this moment. He one day will be back, and we are to live that life now. It's not as if, well, I rather enjoy this worldly life and I'm going to live this, but I have this really cool insurance policy that uh, when I die, well, Jesus will come back and raise me and give me the best of the life that is to come. It's not quite like that. That future life must be lived now. And I think this is the way to understand those passages where the Lord Jesus in John's Gospel says that he gives us now eternal life. He gives us now the way of life which we will live eternally. So whilst, of course, 1 Corinthians 15, we shall be changed, in another sense we shall not be changed, because you and I, the Duncan, the guy with glasses, uh, etc., and you with with the whole sum of your personality and, and the uniqueness that is you and that is me, we individually will be saved. There is such a thing as personal salvation, that we as individuals, will be saved. Now, if we're going to be saved, we've got to, it's not that we have to be worth saving, but it means that who we are now is who we will eternally be. And in that sense, our eternal destiny, our eternal nature of being, is in our hands right now. If we take pleasure in all the dirt and the filth that is in this world, reading their novels about it, watching their movies about it, etc., and take some, some huge, uh, sort of vicarious uh, kind of 
joy in all this nonsense. Well, what do you want to be in the kingdom of God for? Because all that stuff isn't going to be there. If we rejoice in God's ways, in his law, if it is our thought all the day, as David could say, then sure, the kingdom makes sense for us. But if actually in our heart of hearts we want to be with this world, well, why be in the kingdom? If God immortalized a person like that, it would be awful. They wouldn't ultimately want to live forever and ever sitting at the bar with the guys. I I, I mean, watching the the telly. I mean, live forever like that? I mean, that would be a, a punishment, ultimately. So then... We must be enlightened and radiant now and have the eyes to see what is going to happen, the eye of faith, and to live that way right now. And he goes on to say, verse 6, multitudes of camels will cover you, dromedaries from Midian, etc. Gold, frankincense from Ephah, and they shall proclaim or bring good tidings, the RV margin says, or preach the praises of the Lord. This is going to happen. It could have happened when Judah returned from Babylon. They could have returned, and according to all these prophecies, the Gentiles would have flowed under them, and the kingdom of God would have been established on earth. But they didn't want that. And incidentally, the idea of gold and frankincense and praise to the Lord being brought from all those countries this uh, of course is what happened when Jesus was born Matthew 2 verse 11 you might see in your margin there now what's the connection there what's that showing us it's showing us that because Judah did not want to do this at this time they precluded the fulfilment in their lives then in some sense it was fulfilled in another way later on and so if we don't want God's kingdom Well, it it will still ultimately come for those who do want it. He talks about, verse 7, that they will all come and offer rams, etc. on my altar, and I will glorify the house of my glory. Now, we have looked already at Haggai 2, verse 7, where this is exactly the very words of Haggai when he's he's telling the, the Jews who have returned, look, come on, get a grip. Get yourself sorted out, consider your ways, and if you do, I will glorify the house of my glory. It could have happened at the restoration then. Talks about rams and that being offered on my altar, like it does in the later chapters of Ezekiel. And this has been problematic for some who have said, well, are we going to have the sacrifices in God's kingdom, killing animals, blood and all that? Well, my take would be that those prophecies that talk about that, and the latter chapters of Ezekiel are maybe the clearest example, these are talking about what could have happened at the time when Judah returned from captivity in in Babylon. And they could have established this kingdom of God-like situation in the land, with all the Gentiles flowing to them, uh, the whole of it, the latter chapters of Ezekiel are called in 43, uh, I think verse 9, the law of the house. This was, I would say, commandment rather than prediction. And then verse 9, he looks out to sea and he sees in his uh, eye of faith ships of Tarshish coming with silver and gold, etc., to glorify the temple. And that's again Haggai 2, what could have happened 
then, at the time of the Restoration. Notice, incidentally, there is a parallel. Verse 7, I will glorify the house or the temple of my glory. And then it says, verse 9, they will bring all this gold and silver because the Holy One of Israel has glorified thee. That is you singular. You, the individual in Judah, you are parallel with my house, with my temple. That's what God wanted from them. He wanted them to see themselves as his house. But instead they didn't. They carved out for themselves little bits of land, uh, did their bit of farming, weren't really bothered about the temple. When Paul says, you are the temple of God, this has huge implications, just as it did here. That if we are the temple, if I am, in one sense, not separate from God's house, then the things of his house, of his temple, his glory, are my things. So someone is sick in the, in the house of God. And what are you going to do? So, oh yeah, well, I'm busy. I'm going out to, uh, I, I know, I'm doing my own thing tonight. And you don't go see them. But if it was you, or if it was your little girl, or if it was you know, your close house or family, you would be there with them, wouldn't you? But we are to be identified with God's house. The things of the, the ecclesia, the church, God's purpose, these are my personal things. You are the temple, Paul says. And here it's a little bit more subtle. I will glorify the house of my glory, verse uh, 7 at the end, and then verse 9, at the end of verse 9, he has glorified you. And Likewise, at the end of verse 13, God says that he's going to beautify the place of his sanctuary with the gifts that come from Lebanon, and I will make the place of my feet glorious. Verse 14, they that despised you shall bow down themselves at the soles of your feet. God's feet and our feet are kind of paralleled. God is manifest and will be manifest in us and through us insofar as we identify ourselves wholly and fully with him and his purpose and his house. Now also he says there in verse 13 that the glory of Lebanon, the gifts of wood and fir tree, pine and box tree that are going to come from Lebanon will beautify, will be used by God to beautify the place of my sanctuary. And you've got a similar idea there in verse 7 where God says, I will glorify or beautify the house of my glory. But in verse 13 it says that people coming from Lebanon with their gifts of fir tree, pine and box tree to, to build in the temple, that they will glorify or beautify the temple. So then, insofar as we give, our gifts in God's house are what God uses to glorify himself. In other words, God does not just say, well, I fancy glorifying myself, so I shall do so. Uh, mechanically, if you like, in terms of actual uh, human process, he uses people. He wants to glorify his house, so then the Lebanese come and bring their fir tree, pine tree, and box tree, and glorify or beautify the house. See what I'm saying? That 
God works through our giving. It's not that he, does, he, he, he needs it in one sense, but in another sense he does, because that is how he chooses to work. And insofar as we give, insofar as we do that, so there is the more glory given to God, the more beauty, glory, these ideas are parallel here, um, insofar as our generosity in that sense limits the glory of God. It must be like that when you think about it, because if we're told that we should glorify God, well, if we don't do it, he doesn't get the glory. If we do do it, then he does get the glory. So we are holding in our hands the degree to which we glorify him. And so many times in our lives we have the choice of going the the extra mile. We could live like this or we could live on a higher level. And it's not a, a case of there being a model right or wrong in the whole issue. It's just a case, I say just, it's a case of to what extent do you want to glorify God? Do you want to stay up that little bit later? and get up consciously, set your alarm clock that little bit earlier to whatever, do your little bit in God's house. You know what I, the sort of things I mean. Writing letters, thinking, well I'll send an email, actually no I won't. Uh, that uh, sister who is uh, losing her daughter, whose daughter's been diagnosed with uh, cancer, uh, well, yeah, I could dash her off an email, or you know what, I could, I could uh, write a personal note. I think I'll do that. But of course it takes a lot more time. No, I haven't got any nice cards. Okay, maybe I have to go to the shop and get some. Those little things is what takes up human life. Shall I visit that brother in prison? Well, he, well, yeah, he sort of deserves to be there. Ah, yeah, well, yeah, I guess I should. Ah, but you know what? I've got to do this, that or the other. But do you have to do that? And if you were more disciplined, would you have to do that? Would it just be a case of shrugging and saying, well, I don't have time? Now, I'm not saying at all that by our works we shall be saved. Not at all. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that insofar as we choose to glorify and beautify God's house, so it will happen. And insofar as we choose, as Haggai is on about, uh, we choose to build our own house and glorify our own house and live in our own house with beautiful ceilings, etc. Well, that's our choice. But we make that choice, this is Haggai's point, at the expense of God's house. Now, verse 10. And strangers, Gentiles, will build up your walls, and their kings will minister unto you. But what was the reality? Judah had to build their own walls. And the Gentiles, the Samaritans, opposed them. Their kings shall minister unto you. Well, it started off like that. Cyrus blew everybody's mind by making a decree that said, uh, the Jews can go back uh, from Babylon. I give up my control over these uh, hard-working people who, according to the archaeologists and what they discovered, were running the banks, were, according to the book of Esther, were in power, were popular. He said, okay, you can all go. He was giving up a significantly active economic uh, group within the, the economy. And I will give you guys whatever you need to rebuild your temple. Just scribble it to me. I'll pay whatever is needed. I mean, senseless. How on earth could he do that? Amazing. Their kings shall minister unto you. 
But it didn't continue like that, did it? Because they didn't really want to go back. And so the Samaritans got angry with them and uh, opposed them and didn't help them and twisted the minds of the later kings to make decrees to stop the building of the house and all that stuff. Likewise, verse 11, Your gates also shall be open continually. They shall not be shut day nor night, so that men may bring unto you the wealth of the nations. But what happened? You know, Nehemiah, he finds that the Jews are not keeping the Sabbath, but they're trading on the Sabbath. And so he says, well, I had to shut the gates. I had to close the gates so that our people, our Jews, would not go out there mixing in with the Gentiles, trading with them, breaking the Sabbath. He shut the gates. Whereas it says here that the gates of of God's new Zion should be open continually. Now you're also aware that those verses are quoted in Revelation 21, 25 and 26 about what shall happen in the future when Jesus comes back. Verse 19 is also quoted there. The sun shall be no more your light by day. Neither for brightness shall the moon give light unto you, but the Lord shall be unto you an everlasting light, and your God your glory. That is quoted again in, uh, at the end of Revelation about what will happen when Jesus comes back. Another quote in Revelation is in verse 14 where all those that despised you shall bow themselves down at the soles of your feet. Now that is, is quoted, Revelation 3 verse 9, again about what will happen in the kingdom that those that have despised us will bow down themselves at the soles of our feet. So what could have happened when Judah came back from exile did not happen because they didn't want it to happen, because they didn't see the vision. They didn't have the, the eyes of faith to see the potential. And so it was all, as it were, delayed in fulfilment. And the fulfilment maybe was changed in, in essence, so that it, in essence it came true, but maybe not every detail. But God was so willing that it should happen there and then. He says in verse 10, when he says, Strangers, the Gentiles will build up your walls, their kings will serve you, because in my wrath I smote thee, this is going into captivity in Babylon, but in my grace have I had mercy on you. He doesn't say, well, in my wrath I smote you, but you know what, anytime soon I am going to have grace, I'm going to show you grace. Because... You can uh, go back, the Cyrus will make his decree, and I will show you grace, and you can go back after 70 years. He doesn't say, in my wrath I smote you, and, in my gr- and I will show my grace upon you. He says, in my wrath I smote you, but in my favor ha- have I had mercy on you. I have shown you grace. Believe it. You are forgiven. It's all scribbled. It's all finished. I have had grace to you. And they could not believe the good news of grace. And this is exactly, I think, our problem. We talk about grace, we talk about salvation and forgiveness, and yet we somehow can't bring ourselves to fully believe it. It's too good news. I mean, grace, as you know, means a gift, an unmerited gift, favour from God. And he says, I have grace toward you, I will save you. You are in Christ. All of us here, I believe, are baptized into Christ. We are in him. We are covered in him. We are secured in him. His grace is enough. 
we will be saved. But if you believe that grace, faith in that grace without works is dead. It's not, it's not faith in that grace if you don't do anything about it. You cannot be passive to it. So if they have believed what God says here, I have had grace on you. They would have, maybe with some shyness and nervousness and awkwardness, but all the same, they would have built up the walls with joy, they would have returned from Babylon, they would have kept the Sabbath, they would have done all that God wanted them to do, built a temple, uh, as was outlined in the later chapters of Ezekiel, the whole thing could have come together. But they couldn't ultimately believe in grace, that God had forgiven them. And that's why those who stayed in Babylon, whilst they claimed to continue believing in the God of Israel, they mixed all sorts of wrong ideas, pagan ideas, Babylonian ideas, into their theology to get round, I would say ultimately, to get round the challenge of believing in God's grace, that he has forgiven them. And that it's all okay. It's really all okay. Now I know there are some people who beat themselves up over their sins to such an extent. And I never know quite what to say to them because in one sense that's quite right. That we should be sensitive to our sins. And without that we will never find a true humility. We will never find a motive for zeal, for joy, for ecstatic joy. Unless we first of all have realised the extent of our fall, the extent of our need for God's grace. And then when you realise you've, you've had it, you have been saved, he has forgiven you, then there is that, that flame within you to, to serve. But the problem is people, some people beat themselves up over their sin without getting on to that second stage. And I think that is really what happened to Judah in, in captivity. I, I would say that psychologically that ultimately was Israel's problem as to why they had this big barrier in accepting Jesus. Uh, in, you know, you think, well, why? You can say, well, they didn't accept him because it was prophesied they wouldn't accept him. They didn't accept him because they wanted deliverance from the Romans, etc. Yes, but his message w- was quite clear. It was a wonderful message. Why not accept that? And uh, maybe I am over-analytical. But I, I wonder if it all comes back to just as simple as that. But they couldn't believe what he says here in verse 10. In my favour have I had mercy on you. I have shown you grace. It's all okay. And that's, you know, so many times I, I want to say that to those people who do beat themselves up over their sins. Look, it's really all okay. I am not God, but I I can show you from the Bible that you in Christ are forgiven. It is all okay. It's okay. You, before God, are all right. Just believe it. Just believe it. But I I do this, or I I don't do this, I'm not good enough. It's all okay. Just believe it. And then you will be motivated by that to live the life that you would perhaps wish to live or feel you ought to live. Now God was so enthusiastic for them. And I think you see that in verse 17. For brass I, this is God in the context, for brass I will bring gold, and for iron I will bring silver, and for wood brass, and for stones iron. What does that mean? 
For brass, I, God, will bring gold. For iron, I will bring silver. <clears throat> well, he's just been saying that gold and silver and these precious stones are going to be brought to his people by these Gentiles. But why will he replace brass, iron and wood and stones with all these more precious, far more precious things? I wonder if what he means is, if you will give brass, I'll make it gold. If you bring iron to me, I'll give you silver. If you bring wood, I'll give you brass. You give me a couple of stones, I'll give you iron. It's as if God is saying, look, if you make your effort, I will multiply that. Reminds me a little bit, in principle, of what Paul says to the Corinthians when he's talking about raising money for the Jerusalem poor fund. He said, it's accepted according to what a man has, and not according to what he has not. If there is, first of all, a willing heart, if we are willing, if we are truly willing to give to God, to his house, to his work, God will magnify that. He really will. And somehow it will all work out. Now believe me, really, from experience. And he goes on, and I think verse 18 is a wonderful picture of what could have been. Violence shall no more be heard in your land, desolation or destruction within your borders, but you shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. Salvation. Not a bad idea to do this if you have access to a concordance. Look up that word salvation. It's the word Yeshua. Jesus. You will call your walls Jesus. Yah saves. Now, you can see why I'm on this uh, track of thinking that if they really had gone the way that God wanted, they would have come to a sort of kingdom of God situation with a Jesus. But they didn't. They didn't want that, and so it didn't happen. Well, time is, uh, is going on with us. The bottom line out of all this is that God has a plan and a potential for you and me. And if we go that way, if we walk in step with the Spirit, as Paul says, huge things are possible. But it depends if we have eyes to see, as we saw earlier on. Lift up your eyes and look and see, verse 4. Because in God's kingdom, verse 5, then you will see and be radiant or be enlightened and your heart will be enlarged. And as we said, he's saying, look, arise and shine and do it now. And this is where self-examination is important. I do not mean specifically in the context of the breaking of bread. I mean in life generally. What talents do I have that I'm supposed to be out there trading or have I hidden them in the earth? Because I think, well, I've only got one. The other guy's got ten. I, I've only got one. No, no, no. Ask God. And if you take nothing else out of this study than this, then please take this. Ask God, what are your talents? What is your hope? What is your hope in me and for me? What do you want me to do? And if you keep on praying that, I really challenge you. He will answer that. And then verse 22, the little one shall become a thousand, and the small one a strong nation. Now this is the whole idea, that the little one, 
the little one, the RV says. Could be talking about Messiah, the Lord Jesus. The one seed that becomes many. But all the same, it's the it's the, uh, the principle that he's talking about, about fulfilling potential and challenging them to see that you can fulfill this potential. We, the little one, the small one, shall become many. And I wonder, this is a final little thought, I wonder if when Saul changed his name to Paul, the little one, whether he did so because he liked verse 22 and he thought I want to be the little one who becomes a thousand the small one that becomes a strong nation and he changed his name and I rather think that he had this in mind and then the last phrase I the Lord will hasten it in its time God will as it were speed up the whole thing God will Take our littleness. He will take our brass and will give us gold for it. Take our iron and give us silver for it. We the little ones will be hastened by God in his own way, in his own time, into a thousand. That's the challenge for all of us.